0: Welcome back, brothers and sisters. We're going to refocus back onto the Bible again. We're going to do one more segment looking at verses that are helpful from the New Testament now, um, very helpful verses to use uh, with Muslims or with new Christians. Um, They're dealing with themes that are important for the Muslim mind, for Muslim culture, Islamic-influenced cultures. We're going to be challenging some Islamic theologies as we go through these verses. These are just stories. And of course, uh, a lot of Muslims come from cultures where storying and, and, and telling stories is very important. Um, all of us actually come from storying cultures, from the Western world, from uh, the African world, from Asia, um, from all over the world, actually, north, south, east, west. We all come from cultures where we love stories. Just look at our media. There's, uh, we have soap operas, and, uh, i.e. Uh, stories all over our TVs, all over the internet, and we, we love to read books. We love to, to watch and listen to stories. It's just a part of how we identify with other humans and how we think through our culture um, just by storytelling. And and the modern way of doing that is by doing it through the TV. And so stories is very important. Much a part of, of the makeup of human beings. We we love stories. If you have um, a, a, if you follow a religion, your religion is based on a story. Hindus have stories about their many gods. Uh, Muslims have a story. It's a little bit of a of a we say in English higgledy piggledy. It's a bit all over place type of story, and it's not very consistent. But they have stories nevertheless in there. And certainly the story of Muhammad is seems to be one of the most revered story to the Muslim mind. And then the Bible is actually a, a very long story from the beginning of time right to what will happen at the end of times. And it's a very consistent story right from beginning to end, looking at at the whole um, main areas and five main areas that are very helpful. For when you are beginning to unpack the Bible for the Muslim mind or for any mind for that matter but specifically for the Muslim mind it's very helpful to uh, look at different thematic ideas in the Bible and I tend to focus on five and the whole of this book this Bible um, focuses on, on, on many areas but it, you can break it down really into five areas it talks about the theology of God the story of God who God is uh, what he does how he acts the character of God then it talks about the theology of humanity, who human beings are, what men and women are, um, w- what are they to do in life, how are they to relate to each other, and then relate to God. It's a story of humanity. It's a story of what went wrong, uh, sin. It's a story of of the problems of the world, um, evil. How? What are the solutions to evil? It's a consistent story of God, man, sin, and then, of course, after sin, there needs to be a solution. So it's a it's a story of salvation. The beginning, right through to the very end, is a story of how God. Was was on a rescue mission that we saw in the last session when we looked at Eve, that through the seed of Eve, the seed of the woman, that someone would come from the woman, God would rescue the world. God would crush Satan's head through the seed of the woman. Fascinating how it's just consistent from beginning to end. So we have the theology of God, the story of God, the story of human beings, the story of how sin entered the world, then the story of salvation, what God did to bring us back into relationship with him. Um, so that man and woman uh, are truly sharing and showing the image of God in how they live their lives and who they are. That can only now be done through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the salvation story from beginning to end, and then the story of the end goal. The whole Bible points to the end goal, um, uh, to points to heaven, points to us getting back into that perfect relationship that we lost with uh when we sinned in Genesis 3. When Genesis 3 he talks about God walked in the garden, he talked. In the garden, when he was with Adam and Eve, and then we broke that relationship. So, the whole Bible is the story of bringing us back into relationship so we can enter into eternity and build our lives forever in eternity in God's eternal family. So, this book is a story, it's a story of what happened in history. So when we talk to our Muslim friends, or, or even when you're debating, you could maybe bring in these stories as an example. So I want to focus now into the New Testament and look at some of the stories that you can use. And some of you will know these stories, some of them may be new to you. We can use these stories about how God has worked in history, how He will continue to work in history, and how He one day wants to um, really... Uh, what, the end solution of what He wants to bring us to. And so I'm going to focus on a few stories, and these stories will challenge Islamic ideas. Um, this higgledy-piggledy story, the story that's a bit of a mishmash that is borrowed in from heretical Christian sources, that is borrowed in from uh, Judaic sources that is not the Bible, that is borrowed in from pagan sources, even maybe a bit of Zoroastrian, Persian sources. All those kinds of little bits of stories have found their way into, it, into this book. But it's a bit of higgledy piggledy all over the place. And so it doesn't give you a consistent theology of God. It's a contradictory theology of God. It doesn't give you a consistent picture of humanity and how God works with humanity. It certainly doesn't give you a consistent picture or a good, clear story of sin. It doesn't even seem to know what sin is and it even allows sin, and it even says sin is okay. Is certainly when you compare it to the biblical story. It doesn't have a clear picture of salvation. Muhammad said when he died in a hadith, he said that, I don't know what will be done with me. Muhammad does not know what will be done with him. Muhammad is dead. He's in the grave. His story has ended. Unfortunately, he's got a very difficult future ahead of him. His eternal story is unbearable. He he is leading or has led two million People in the same way, to an eternal separation from God. But it's not even clear what that end time story is and it seems very human and very carnal. It's a mishmash of ideas, a borrowing from many, many different traditions but not the Bible. It doesn't borrow from the biblical story. The biblical story is clear. This story is not clear. So help your Muslim friends to see what a mishmash this book is. That's not being cruel my friends. That is being kind. It is kind to point out to the Muslim that there are issues with their story. That it doesn't help us understand some of the main areas of life, those five areas that I pointed out, God, human beings, sin, salvation, eternity. Five helpful um, areas of theology to look into when you do comparisons between these two books In fact, if you want to go into mosques and you want to do studies between the two books, start with those five themes. It's very, very helpful when you do that with Muslims. But we're going to zero in now in a little bit looking at women of the New Testament. And it's very helpful, um, folks, not when you just do this with Muslim women. It can be helpful to do this with Muslim men. So those of you who are men, who Christian men who are beginning to look at the Bible with Muslim men or beginning to introduce biblical themes to to Muslim men. These are helpful to use because it helps Muslim men see how important women are to God. Muslim men don't have a healthy view of women. And it's you your responsibility as a Christian man to help Help Muslim men see how God has used women to bring about his salvation into the world. You think, ooh, that's a bit of a heretical statement. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is look at how God used women and worked through women to rescue people, to rescue nations physically, um, through Esther, for example, and also through a woman, through a a young woman, the savior of the world came. And that is Eve. We read about, um, uh, that is Mary, excuse me. Mary, the saved the world came through Mary. And of course, that was promised through Eve. So Mary is at the heart of God's salvation plan. Mary is at the core of what God was doing to the world. But the difference between the Bible and the Quran is that the Bible treats Mary rightly. She's just a normal girl. She's not put on a pedestal. She's not seen, she's not even really called the mother of God (laughs) or the mother of Jesus. She's known as the mother of Jesus, but that's not really her title. That title is the mother of Jesus or Jesus, the the son of Mary, became much later. And so that title where Mary was revered when the Catholic Church and the theologies that became much of the Catholic Church became into play. And we see this um, Mariolatry. we see the reverence of Mary. Something that many Muslims point to, how they say, you Christians revere Mary, you Christians pray to Mary. Well, actually, no, the Bible never says to pray to Mary. The Bible never says to revere Mary. The Bible's all about the theology of God and the theology of humanity. Mary's part of humanity, but that's what she is. She's no greater and no less than any any of us because we are all children of the most high God. But the Quran talks about Mary in a way that was that was introduced a few centuries later in a way that reveres her in an unhealthy way. And, and it's fascinating because she's the only named woman in the Quran. And she, in fact, it shows the human origins of this book because that is a human title when it re- has the reverence of Mary, which came much later after the Bible. So the Mary, God in the Bible talks about Mary in the right way. Um, she, of course, is favored and she is a pure girl. She's a young girl. She was probably a teenager. And just as as an extra here, a lot of Muslims will say, well, it's OK for you Christians or for anyone to, Marry a teenager, because Mary would have been a teenager again uh, we 're dealing with a culture that habit was two thousand years ago in her culture. Teenage girls were basically women fifteen year old girls 14 year old girls were functioning as women they were mature. If you look at the Western world, 14, 15-year-old girls are little girls. They're not mature. And so the the Quran, which it imposes the way it looks at its people of old, it looks at Muhammad, it looks at his wives, including the nine-year-old Aisha, the child bride, and it says that because she was nine, we can marry a nine-year-old. Because Muhammad took on teenagers, we can take on teenagers. As if that's a role model, as if that practical way of life, 1,400 years ago, is appropriate for today. That's not how the Bible tells us to look to the, the people of the Bible as examples. We have a different approach to what example means. We are, are the examples that we follow. It's not how it's not living the New Testament life out to teach exactly. It's looking at the theologies and the principles and the things and, and the way their morality, God's moral laws. And for example, that's the examples that we follow. It's not looking at how the disciples dressed or how the women dressed of old. That's not how we are to live today. It's looking at their changed hearts. It's looking at their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we follow today. It's the spiritual aspects that we follow today. But Islam is all external. So, for example... Many um, Muslims will come to me and they will say to me, they will say, Betty, um, Mary and all the New Testament women, they wore long flowing robes and they wore scarves. Where's your scarf? You should be wearing a scarf like Mary. Because in every image of Mary, which you often will find in the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Churches, the images of Mary show her with a long veil on. So Muslims just automatically think that's biblical. They think that's Christian that's just her culture. If she did wear a veil, that's her culture. That has nothing to do with my culture. That's not what God is meaning. When we are to look to the New Testament examples um, to know how to live today, it's looking at his principles. So what we're going to do now with these stories is looking at the principles that it bring out, looking at the themes that they bring out, not the actual woman themselves, but the themes and the spiritual matters that God deals with And it's fascinating when God is telling stories. Jesus, when he walked on earth and he was telling us stories, he used stories of women. There's the beautiful story um, of of the woman and it's a parable. God is using a woman in Luke uh, 15 verse 8 and 9 and 10. And he uses the story of a woman to tell a very important uh, spiritual, to teach a very important spiritual lesson. In fact, he's talking about salvation. And in that culture to use, A woman in a parable would would have been against that very male-dominated culture. It was a culture that would have looked down on women. The time Jesus came two thousand years ago didn't revere women. Yet Jesus talks about women in this way and uses the example of a woman looking for a coin and talks about how the heavens rejoice when she finds the coin, as if it was like a sinner coming into the kingdom of God. The whole salvation story, um, and he uses a woman to explain the salvation story, a salvation theme. Fascinating how God is not afraid to go against the culture that he entered into when he took on flesh, as Philippians 2 verse 5 and onwards so clearly tells us. So we have Mary. She's at the center of God's salvation plan. And I often say to my Muslim friends, I say, are you aware? And I say this to both men and women. I say, are you aware that women are at the heart of God's plan for mankind? And they look at me a bit funny, and then I explain. I look at Eve, and then I look at Mary. Then you have a Martha and the women in, in Matthew 28. And again, in a culture, it shows how Martha and the women, they, they'd gone to the tomb to see, to see Jesus. They wanted to uh, put herbs on his, on his body. And they saw Jesus. They were the, one of the first witnesses to Jesus. This is 2,000 years ago when the, when women were looked down upon. And certainly 1,400 years ago or 300 years ago, depending on when you think the Quran was written, this book, I mean, Surah 2, 282, says that a woman's testimony is half that uh, as a man. And it implies that women easily are mistaken. What does God do? He goes against male-dominated culture. He goes against misogyny. Or pro male, anti female ideas, and he he meets with women first, and that was against his culture that he had entered into, against the kind of culture that he was living among. He used the women. It's fascinating. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you read the story of the women went back to the disciples and they told them that they'd seen Jesus. And look at the response of the men. They they really did not believe them, they ran to look for themselves. It's quite funny when you see, you read between the lines because they were probably functioning just according to their culture. Not an example for us to use today, but they were functioning as men in their culture, like, I don't believe what those women are saying. So they went to look for themselves. It's quite a humorous story when you read between the lines. Then you have the widow of Nain's son and Luke 7 verse 11, God had compassion on her. And um, he healed her. She was a widow. There's a lot of stigma against a widow in Islam. There was a lot of stigma against this woman. In fact, the women of Jesus' time lived in a culture that Islam now encourages. That's very important because Jesus always rose above his culture. Muhammad just fell prey to his culture. He was captivated by his culture. Not only did he fall prey to his culture, he even made his culture worse, if you could do a comparison with what Muhammad did with women. Um, and even the way it then perverted the minds of men um, of his time. And so you have this woman, he has uh, a compassion on the widow of Nain, and then he heals her only son, probably her only source of, of support um, from the son. Compare that with Surah 66, verse 5, where uh, Allah, the God of Islam, uh, comes, uh, talks to, or at least gives a, a, a revelation uh, to the wives of Muhammad and says that he will give Muhammad better wives. And among those better wives are widows, maidens and widows. Again, uh, just do a comparison to how Jesus treated the widow, healing the son, did not take her as a wife. Whilst Muhammad took many widows as wives and his men took many widows as wives and it was they were widowed because of Muhammad and his men. Just do a comparison t- between how Jesus looked after widows and how Muhammad did. The Bible says very clearly in the New Testament that the church is to look after and care for the widow, provide for the widows. It it, it helps the vulnerable. Yet in that New Testament culture and in the time of Muhammad, uh, widows would have been looked down upon and it was a lot of stigma if you became a widow. What about the hemorrhaging women in Luke 8 um, and Mark 5 and so on? In Luke 8:43 and onwards, she was a woman who would have been considered unclean because she um, she she was hemorrhaging blood for many years. So she was not a, a clean woman according to Mosaic law, and very sadly now, according to Islamic law, you see Jesus came so that that kind of law that showed that we were impure in and of ourselves has been uh, has been fulfilled by Christ, and he died on that cross so that any woman, even the woman who is hemorrhaging, can enter the presence. Of God can pray to God in her weakness. That's the God we now follow. That's the God who used that uh, cleanliness law in the Old Testament to point to the need for a savior. Islam totally ignored that. Muhammad, or whoever, probably not Muhammad, whoever wrote this book, and we now don't think Muhammad had much to do with the foundations of Islam, but nevertheless, whoever wrote this book didn't seem to understand that. Whoever wrote the Islamic law and all the cleanliness laws, the wudu, and so on, didn't seem to understand that. But this woman, hemorrhaging woman, she touches God and God feels power come out of his cloak. And he says, who touched me? And then he reinstated her and he healed her. This woman who would have been unclean, an unclean woman touches the God of the universe. That's profound. Help Muslims to see what is happening in this story. The Sabbath healing, this is very important because rules and rituals and regulations are so important to Muslims. I was telling you in a a previous um, session where we were talking about uh, an abbreviated uh, put-together hadith, Sayings of Muhammad, and it, it focused so much on cleanliness laws. It was like it was one of the most important things, especially when it came to the woman. And um, and here, and it has all these, it had rule after rule, even rules on how to go to the toilet, as if we're children. It's our parents that teach us how to go to the toilet. But in Islam, the God teaches you how to go to the toilet, like you're a child. Allah treats human beings like children. The God of the universe gives us the power to be grown ups, to be wise, to know how to live our lives without every single edict, um, uh, to, to, to fulfill all these edicts, because He empowers us to live the way we need to live. He treats us as adults, He treats us how we should be treated. So, God heals on the Sabbath, He goes against human law. This book is full of human law. Islam is full of human law. And God goes against human law because of Jesus was the one who made law in the Old, in the Old Testament. He was the one who gave law in the Old Testament. And so he is the one who can fulfill the law. And he, he teaches us in the Old Testament why we have the law. The New Testament helps understand understand that. Jesus goes against man-made law and heals on the Sabbath in Luke 13. The Pharisees are very angry when Jesus kept going against man-made law not only did he go against man-made laws he, he actually did supernatural events um, and to challenge these man-made laws showing he had power over human beings power over man-made laws that's something that goes against anything islam understands so when we follow god we will go against the man-made laws of islam Then you have the beautiful story of Mary and Martha. Now, a lot of people focus on on Mary and and, and Martha's responses. They focus on Martha. I want to focus on Mary's response. You have Jesus in their house. This is interesting. Jesus, a single man in the house of what we think are single women. And Lazarus was the brother. So it was a family that Jesus considered some of his best friends. Two women are part of Jesus' best friends. They're very close to him. They are his sisters, not real sisters, but his friends who have become sisters part of the eternal family so in Luke 10 we have see Jesus freely mixing with women compare that with um, surah 33 53 where we have Muhammad Allah again helps Muhammad in his domestic situation and he brings about gender segregation do not talk to Muhammad's wives except from behind a hijab a curtain a screen a barrier that's what hijab is Here Jesus goes against cultural norms. He treats the women as equal. Mary's in the kitchen preparing. Martha's in the kitchen preparing. Mary's at the feet. And Mary's talking to him about deep theological themes. Mary is going against her culture. Jesus is going against the culture that he's entered into. And he's given an example to us today of how men and women are to interact. And in this particular situation, he says, Mary has chosen the better. When Martha complains that she's not helping her in the kitchen. Just show how Jesus freely mixed with women, how women traveled with him when he traveled through Galilee and and through the rest of of Israel. Show how women were with them and how women were part of Jesus' whole um, um, uh, companion of people that followed him. Then you have the Samaritan woman. Now, this is an important story. This is an immoral woman who was from a culture that the Jews were supposed to hate because they had a corrupted theology, a corrupted theology of God. And this woman comes out and is in the middle of the day, which is interesting. That's not usually when they'd come out to get water. And she comes out to the well to get water, possibly because she's an immoral woman. Jesus sees into her life. He knows. He knows about her. He knows she has more than one husband, or has had more than one husband. And uh, he, he starts talking to her about deep spiritual matters. He is treating her as an equal in his humanity, not equal as God, but equal. He's talking to her as a valuable person in humanity. And not only is she then, she believes, she goes back to her village. She brings her village out. She says, come and meet this man who knows everything about me. And half the village or many of the villagers, they, they believe and they begin to follow him. She becomes one of the first evangelists. A woman becomes one of the first evangelists. God rose above the culture he'd entered into and treated her with value. That's in Luke in, in John chapter 4. Then you have the sinful, repentant woman in Luke 7. She's weeping. She's crying on Jesus Um feet. And in in Surah 5, 6, we know that if a man just touches a woman, it makes him unclean. Here a woman is weeping on Jesus' feet, crying, rubbing his feet with her hair, pouring expensive perfume over him. The men around are disgusted and Jesus forgives her and reinstates her, goes against his culture. All of this is important for the Muslim mind because they have issues in these areas and they judge people like this woman. But Jesus forgave her and reinstated her. Then um, you have Priscilla in Acts 18. Priscilla was a woman of, of importance in the early church. She taught God's apostle and fellow workers, and she had a church in her home. Priscilla and Aquila, her name is put first in, in when it talks about Priscilla and Aquila. It's quite interesting. It's quite important for, um, for, for the times of the New Testament, showing the importance of this woman. She, she, was, she was a woman of influence, and she had influence over the apostles of God. Lydia, the same kind of woman in Acts 16, Priscilla talked about in Acts 18 and Romans 16. Lydia at Acts 16, she was an entrepreneur. She opened up her home to the, to the apostles. These women had fellowships in their home. They were key. They were known out in the public and they were key witnesses in the early church and ministers in the early church. So what we, you read these stories with Muslims, you compare it to how a Muslim, just ask Muslim friends, what do you think about that? And you will get into a fascinating conversation. Try find equivalent, sto- equivalent stories or ideas in the Quran and the example of Muhammad and do a comparison. Now I want to wrap up by um, talking about our standing before God. And this is really helpful to use with Muslims. I've used this in a, in a, in a Bible study that I was doing with Kurdish women that I referred to um, earlier. And um, it was very helpful to help them understand how the Bible views the Christian woman and then compare it to how the Quran views the Muslim woman and it's very helpful to 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 go through this with with Christian men and Muslim men and for Christian men to use this with with Muslim men for them to understand how valuable woman is to God of the Bible so when you look at, at the whole of the Bible, we have Genesis 1, men and women created in the image of God. Genesis 3, 8 and 9, both were in relationship with God. When God was walking in the garden, he called out to Adam and Eve. He, he was in relationship with both of them. Romans two twenty three it says that both are fallen both are sinful. It's not talking about male or female are fallen. Muslims like to say that only the female fell. No, both are fallen before God. Not one gender is more sinful than the other. We are both sinful. Both can turn back to God and know Him as a friend. John three sixteen for God to so love the world makes no definition between man and woman. Hebrews four both can th- approach the throne of God directly. Both genders are incorporated in these stories. Both can be in God's service, 1 Corinthians 12, Acts 17, the gifts are given to both genders. All believers are equal in Christ, Galatians three twenty-eight. No male or female, slave or free, we are all equal in the sight of God. All believers are considered priests, um, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where it talks about the priesthood of believers. We all have something to say and be ambassadors for God. We are priests for God in the sense that we are the conduit through which God speaks to the rest of the world. All believers are children of God. There's no gender distinctions. We are all children of God, John 1, verse 12. And all believers are giving gifts of the Holy Spirit for the edification of the church and for the uh, the proclamation of the gospel. The first testifiers to God, the witnesses to God rising again. Um, the first uh, missionary of God, uh, the Samaritan woman, It Samaritan, she was a woman. So we are all giving gifts for the edification of God and for the edification of the gospel so that we can bring people back into the gospel so that they would then worship the one true God.